When someone uh, turns to you, be it a friend or a neighbor or someone on television or someone on the radio, and they say the words, God has spoken to me, how do you respond? I'm sure you've, you've heard it before. Someone has claimed that, hey, God has spoken to me, be it a dream or a vision or an impression or, or something. Uh, he's, he's, he's spoken to me. How do you evaluate that? How do you evaluate that kind of comment? You know, I especially hear this kind of comment often on television. I, up on the screen behind me, you're going to see some, some very recognizable television evangelists primarily who, who all of these individuals up here behind me, these are people who can say, who have said without a doubt that God has spoken to me. Uh, we've got Pat Robertson up there. We've got Benny Hinn. We've got uh, uh, Paul and Jan Crouch. We've got uh, Robert Tilton, Jimmy Swaggart, Kenneth Copeland. Now, these are uh, very well-known televangelists, all of whom have made claims that God has spoken to them, at least at, w- at one point in their life, through a dream, through a vision, through a prophecy, a, a, a strong impression. How do you know when they're telling the truth? How do you know when these kinds of people, or a friend, or a neighbor, or someone, just they say, God said something to me and told me to do this. How do you know when to believe them? How do you know that they're not like other people who have said, God spoke to me? People like, I don't know, uh, Muhammad. He said, God spoke to me. Uh, Joseph Smith, in the middle there. He had a vision, or at least he claims he did. Or how about David Koresh? Claimed that God spoke to him. How do we know when the people on television or our friends or our neighbors are not actually deceivers and people trying to lead us astray by professing a false revelation about God speaking? We're coming up to our final message in a series of messages titled, uh, Dreams and Visions. Dreams and Visions. Back in December, we looked at Christmas dreams and visions. And we, we, we asked the question, what are some of the characteristics? What are some of the purposes of the dreams and visions that surrounded the, the birth of Christ? And we looked in December on uh, the 13th and on the 20th of these characteristics and purposes of dreams and of visions. And then later on, just last Sunday, we asked the question, well, if these dreams and visions are real, what kind of merit do they have today? What kind of credence can we give to them? What, what, what can we accord them? What kind of truth can we accord to them? Are they meritorious for today? Or were they just for Old Testament times, just for the times of Jesus Christ? And last week, by way of a, a, a simple reminder here, we began to answer this question by looking first at the Word of God. We said, look, if we're going to begin to discuss the merits of modern divine revelations, we need to first trust a divine revelation that is tried and true, the Word of God. 
And we looked at a passage like Acts 2, 17 and 18. A passage that is so familiar, but often we forget that, wait, this is yet future. It says this, Peter quoting the prophet Joel, he says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on My men servants and My maidservants, I will pour out My Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And we came to learn last week that these words spoken by Peter Quoting the prophet Joel, these words have not been finally fulfilled. They were fulfilled as a type at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers. But not in full. Not the full range of this prophecy. You and I live today waiting for this day in Acts 2, 17 and 18. You and I live today waiting still for this day to happen. And this has drastic implications. It means that we can no longer just throw aside someone who claims to have had a dream or vision. We can no longer just say, oh, come on now, that can't be possible. We should at least now, based on Acts 2, 17 and 18, we should at least listen to what they have to say and consider the merits of their experience. We should actually expect that dreams and visions will not only occur, but that they will incur, occur with increasing frequency as we approach the last days. So that we should actually expect more of these to happen as time goes by. These are some of the drastic implications of just these two small verses in Acts. That's what the prophet Joel said would happen. And we are seeing glimpses of this in our own church. You know, last Sunday in my message, I shared stories uh, I, uh, of some four individuals at our church, Coast Bible Church, a evangelical, uh, non-charismatic, probably cessationist-leaning church. And I shared stories from four of you who have told me that you've either had a dream or a vision or you've heard the voice of God. And I believe all four of those stories. And I received some six others that I didn't share, all of which just amazing testimonies of God revealing Himself to people in our little church in San Juan Capistrano. What does this tell us? It tells us the Lord is still at work. He is active. He is not static. And sometimes, every so often, He reveals Himself to us in a dream or a vision. Now, we also, however, we also acknowledge that for some of us, dreams and visions, they're, they're kind of hard to swallow. Perhaps we, we grew up in a, in a cessationist church. And by cessationist, I mean that, that God has ceased. He stopped revealing Himself to mankind by means of prophecy and tongues and dreams and visions. And now, now to be fair... There are different levels of cessationist beliefs. There are different varieties of cessationism. And last week, I really didn't bring that out. Uh, it wasn't uh, really a focus of my message. But I want to be fair to cessationism. There are different levels of it. Some people, um, some cessationists believe that the Lord no longer communicates to mankind on any level. Not through prophecy, not through tongues, not through miracles, nothing. 
God no longer speaks to mankind. That's what some cessationists believe. Other cessationists would just say, well, some of the ways in which God has communicated to man has stopped. For instance, uh, there's no longer the gift of apostleship. No one is now a modern-day apostle. That's what some cessationists would say. And actually, I would probably find myself in agreement with that view, that, that very uh, pared-down view of cessationism. I no longer believe that there are apostles today, or the gift of apostle. So there are different levels of cessationism. But one thing is clear. One thing is clear that we should uh, be mindful of. When faced with scriptures like this one, Acts 2, we are treading on thin ice when we maintain a full cessationist position. It is exceedingly difficult to interpret Acts 2, 17 and 18 as anything but a future prophetic reality. And so, being the, the Bible church that we are, we say in accordance with scripture that dreams and visions do remain a way in which God can and does communicate to mankind. Now, we desperately need to put together some parameters for this, some final guidelines for this, within which we can know when God is speaking to me. When someone says, God spoke to me last night, how do you know whether to believe them or not? That's a legitimate question. And today, we conclude this series of messages on dreams and visions with a final focus on some parameters. Parameters that help us discern when a revelation is from God and when it is not. What can we expect of a divine revelation? And what are some warning signs that can help us know when a revelation is not, in fact, from the Lord? And so today we look at our final message, dreams and visions, expectations and warnings. What can we expect from them? What can we anticipate that a divine dream, what are some of the, the things that we can expect from it? And finally, what are some things we need to watch out for? What are some red flags? When someone on television starts to talk in this way, what are some warning signs that maybe what they have to say is illegitimate, is not true? Now, some of the scriptures we'll be looking at today in this uh, topical message uh, do not pertain exactly to dreams and visions. It doesn't say... Uh, uh, here's some parameters for dreams and visions and then give it to you. Uh, many of these a scriptures are actually going to pertain to knowing when a prophet is from the Lord or not. But I find that these principles in these passages align nicely with the expectations and warnings we should have with someone who claims to have had a divine dream or vision. So again, do not expect these passages to say definitively, if they've had a divine dream or vision, it will look like this. No, these, these are going to be guidelines, principles we're going to be drawing from out of scriptures that, that really more or less speak to this issue. So I want to start with some expectations. What can we expect? What can we anticipate from a divine dream or vision? Well, first, an authentic divine revelation is, number one, it is entirely consistent with the Word of God. It is entirely consistent with the Word of God. And go ahead and jot that down on your outline there. Entirely consistent with the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, it says this. Paul says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet 
or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And so what's Paul saying there? He's suggesting that, look, if there's anybody who's going to rise up in the church at Corinth, if there's anybody who's going to rise up and say, I have a prophecy, or I have a revelation, or I have something to say here, something spiritual to give to the people of the church, let that person first acknowledge the revelation of God in His Word. Let them first acknowledge that what Paul has said, who is a preeminent apostle of Jesus Christ, let them first acknowledge that what Paul has said is true. And by implication, that what the Word of God has already said is true. Someone who is going to claim to have a divine dream or vision must first acknowledge the whole of the Scriptures. Secondly, a second Scripture there from Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. A familiar one for some of you. But even if we, Paul says, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you other than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. There is no room, Paul says, for a divine dream or vision, for a divine prophecy or revelation to deviate from the Word of God. There's no reason for it. It is necessarily false if it does that. It is necessarily false if they preach any other gospel, any other doctrine that is outside the revelation of God's Word. What other things can we expect from an authentic divine revelation? Number two, it is not merely, I'll emphasize, not merely substantiated by signs or verifiable evidence, but also by orthodox confession of the person and work of Christ. Now, for some of you, this, if, if you remember some past messages, this might be a little bit confusing because I spoke a lot about dreams and visions often have physically verifiable evidence. And that's one of the characteristics of a dream or vision. And indeed it is. In a dream or a vision, it is often the case that there will be some verifiable thing that you can expect to happen to authenticate that divine dream or vision. But the point of this is, of this statement is, it is not merely substantiated because of that. In other words, if all you have is a physically identifiable event, and that's all there is that you can look forward to in the future, and if it happens, okay, and if it doesn't, well, you know it's not true. If that's all you have is a future event, a future verifiable, uh, some sort of verifiable evidence, you need to be careful there. Because divine dreams and visions, they are not merely, solely authenticated because what you dreamed about comes true. I'll show you why. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 1 John chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they, have God, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Now, what's going on here in, in, in 1 John? John is dealing with a particular form of heresy known as Gnosticism. And in this kind of, of heresy, one of the tenets of Gnosticism is that Jesus lived His life on earth 
in a spiritual body, not a physical body. And it's just a, it's a small deviation, a small slight from the Scriptures, but one that leads to uh, significant implications. And John is here addressing this issue. He's saying, no, 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 listen. Test the spirits. In other words, test the prophets. Test the ones speaking. Test the ones revealing a revelation from God. And ask them about their confession. Ask them about their doctrine. Ask them what they believe about Jesus Christ. Did He come in the flesh? Or are they a Gnostic? Did He come in a spiritual body? He says, focus in on what they believe about Jesus Christ. When a person claims to have had a dream or vision, do not merely ask questions about their experience. Ask them what they believe about Jesus Christ. I want to turn to one other passage which will really bring out this, this, this number two point here. Matthew chapter 7, a very familiar one again. Beware, Jesus says, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He says, therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not, notice this, prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know, the, the, the point on number two here was that it's not merely substantiated by signs or verifiable evidence. This is why I bring that up. Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? By implication there it is, have we not prophesied accurately? In other words, have we not told things to others and they have come to pass? That's their evidence. These false prophets, that's their evidence for trying to get into the kingdom of heaven. We've done this. We've predicted. we predicted the event. It came to pass. It's not merely substantiated by an event that comes to pass. Verse 20, notice carefully, it says, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Now, Christians, by and large, routinely, routinely assume that verse 20 refers, that the fruit of verse 20 refers to good works. But there is really no basis for this interpretation at all. There is no basis whatsoever to refer to the fruit of verse 20 as good works. Why? Notice carefully what the false prophets have done. Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? By all accounts, these false prophets had performed good works. How else would you categorize casting out a demon? Would you call that a bad work? Of course not. It's a good work. At least from our vantage point it is. At least as we're looking at them performing this before us, we think, my goodness, how did they do that? That's why these false prophets, by the way, are said to be in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep on the outside. They have been performing seemingly good works and that is why they are appealing to these works to get into the kingdom of heaven. They look like sheep on the outside. 
Ah, but on the inside, on the inside, in the heart, where it counts, they are ravenous wolves. And what did Jesus say about the inside? He said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How will we know these false prophets? We'll know them by their fruits. What is their fruits? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is the words, the things they say about Jesus Christ. Don't believe me? Take a look at Matthew 12. A tree is known by its fruit, Jesus says five chapters later. Brood of vipers. He's talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. How can you, being evil, notice this, speak good things? Fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. This is good words, by the way. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. Evil words. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You will know them by their fruits, not by their works. Oh, no, no. Because if you're looking at their works alone, they might cast out a demon, and you might attribute that to be a good work. They might prophesy, and you might attribute that to be a good work. They might perform a sign, and you might attribute that to a good work and think, my goodness, is this a prophet? Is this an authentic dreamer? Is this an authentic person with, who's had a vision? Now you'll know them by their fruits, their words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let us no longer read Matthew 7 and Matthew 12 as fruit that is good works. It is fruit that is good words. It is their confession. It is their doctrine. It is what is coming out of their mouth. That is how you will know if they are of God or if they are of the enemy. Again, point number two. It is not merely substantiated visions and dreams. They're not merely substantiated by signs or verifiable evidence, but also by an orthodox confession, a true confession of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That point is, uh, is just critical. Number three. An authentic divine revelation is subject to the Lord, His Word, and the judgment and scrutiny of the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29. It says this, Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Now, that's a real small and pithy statement by Paul. And if you were to read it, I'm not taking it at all out of context. It's very plain, uh, a very plain statement. He says, look, when someone's going to prophesy in the church, so we're not talking about dreams or visions per se, but I think the principle applies. If someone's going to prophesy in church, let this person do so. But here's the kicker. Let the others judge. Well, who are the others? You. You are the others. The church is the others. Paul says, look, okay, let's have the prophets prophesy. Let's have them share their divine revelations. Let's have them share what God has said to them and let you, the others, judge. This is a, really, this is, this is a turn, by the way. This is a big turn 
in the office of the prophet from Old Testament times to New Testament times. Um, in the Old Testament times, you really don't see Elijah and Elisha and others, you really don't see them being subject to uh, the, the, the religious gatherings. You don't really see them be subject to the priests. Instead, they're pretty much authoritative. They tell the word of the Lord and, and there it is. Take it or leave it. Here we have a turn in the New Testament role of a prophet. A prophet is now subject to, of course, the Lord and of course His word, but also the judgment and scrutiny of the church. They are subject to the church. The church, guided by the Holy Spirit, is to render judgment whenever it is faced with some kind of divine revelation from God. And so, what does this tell us? It says we don't need to fear divine revelations anymore, the people claim. Why? Because we have opportunity to judge the merits of those things. Instead, we need to trust the Spirit will guide us as we assess these claims, comparing them with the Scriptures, to determine if, in fact, this message is from the Lord. And so Paul, in a later comment in 1 Thessalonians, he says this about prophecies. He says, therefore, hey, don't despise prophecies. Don't loathe them. Don't hate them. Don't have scorn for them. Instead, test all things and hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to a revelation that is good. Paul says, rid yourself of a knee-jerk skepticism. Rid yourself of scorn. Scorn of those who claim to have heard from the Lord. Allow time for the church to hear the matter. Trust the Spirit to guide the church. Some expectations again in summary. Here they are. Number one, what can we expect from a divine revelation? It is entirely consistent with the Word. Number two, it is not merely substantiated by signs or verifiable evidence, but also by orthodox confession, fruit, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And number three, it is subject to the Lord, His Word, and the judgment and scrutiny of the church. Those are some things we can expect. How about some warning signs? We have some warning signs, and I want to get to those. Let's move through these quickly here. Warning signs. What can we watch out for? Well, number one, I want to say this. And it's very simple and plain. Not all dreams have meaning. Okay? Not all dreams have meaning. It is just not necessarily the case. I'm not going to turn to Isaiah 29.8, but I put it on your handout there. But that is biblical evidence there of a dream that had no meaning. I didn't mean anything. As the, as the armies were invading, about to invade Jerusalem, uh, the Lord spoke of how they had a dream and it meant nothing. Not all dreams have meaning. So don't go looking for every, uh, every aspect, uh, to, to find a meaning to every aspect of your dream. Sometimes you just have crazy dreams. Right? Alright. Number two, the interpretation of a dream or vision uh, is not always self-evident. Wait on the Lord to give explanatory aid. You know, in Acts 10, verse 17, a dream, not dreams. Uh, Acts 10, 17, Peter has a dream, he has a vision. The, 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 the cloth comes down, the, the meat is upon it, and the Lord says, take it and eat. And Peter says, whoa, I'm kosher. I don't understand this vision. I don't understand this revelation. And it, it actually says in verse 17 of Acts 10, Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. He did not get it. Wait on the Lord to give explanatory aid. 
Uh, Jenny Thompson, uh, I mentioned her magnificent dream, magnificent dream at the end of my last message uh, last Sunday, the dream that led to her adoption of her fourth son or her fourth child, Isaiah. You know, she did not fully comprehend that dream at first. She did not fully comprehend it. It was so just kind of whacked. And, and, and she just, what, that, that can't mean anything. That can't mean anything. But in time, all the components of her dream came to fruition. The Lord gave explanatory aid. And so, wait on the Lord. Do not rush to judgment. Do not rush to interpretation. The Scriptures actually do not speak of a gift of interpretation of dreams. Um, however, like men like Joseph and Daniel, these men appeared to have that gift, but no, nowhere in the New Testament do we see that being a gift of the Spirit. So wait on the Lord. Wait for explanatory aid. Number three, the message, and this is somewhat akin to what we spoke at in the expectations section, but the message or instructions of a dream or vision is not necessarily true solely because it accurately predicts future events or signs. So this is kind of the flip side of that. And I want to show you a text which really, really captures this point. Deuteronomy 13. If there arises among you, Moses says, a prophet, uh, the Lord says through Moses, I should say, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or wonder and the sign or wonder comes to pass, don't miss that. It's accurate. He tells the truth. It happens. Of which he spoke to you saying, this is also what he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Notice carefully, Moses predicts that false prophets will make good on signs and wonders. They will make them come to pass. But we are not to go after them just because they accurately predict a future event or make a miracle occur. Why? Because notice what they have said all along. In verse 2, it says that they also said, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. Once again, friends, listen to their fruit. Listen to their words. And this brings me to point four. Number four here, we should anticipate the coming of false prophets and false signs and be prepared to evaluate their words and their teaching. Their words and their teaching. That is what is key here, not what they do. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through three. Now, there were also false prophets, Peter says, among the people. This will be in the last days. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, words, even denying the Lord, words, who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. To blaspheme, it takes words. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. And for a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. The emphasis on words in the Scriptures is, is just Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Jesus said, by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's a fantastic statement. The power of the mouth, the power of the tongue to lead people astray is, is, uh, is awesome. 
and terrifying. Number five. This is, uh, this is important. Beware of those who, citing their special revelation, seek out power, authority, and mandate over others. Remember that all are subject to the Lord, His Word, and His church. This is a really important point. Um, too often, especially many of the televangelists and sometimes those who have a dream or vision, they try to, they try to ask for power and mandate or, or they try to order others based on a dream or vision that they have had. But notice what 2 John 1, 10 and 11 says. It says this, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the, the, the one doctrine of the Scriptures, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, many suppose, uh, many wrongly suppose that this means don't ever uh, open your door to a cultist who walks up and wants to talk to you. That is not what this passage says. It's absolutely not true. What this passage means is, in the first century church, they did not meet in buildings. They did not meet in places like, like the place we meet now. They met in homes. They met in homes. And so what this passage is suggesting here, John is suggesting, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, that is to say, your church, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. The point of 2 John 1, 10 and 11 is don't give the pulpit in your house, your church, to a deceiver. Don't give the pulpit, don't give the place of teaching to someone who denies the doctrine of our Lord. Don't give power, don't give authority, don't give mandate to someone who comes and citing some special revelation says, I need this place. I need to speak to your church. I've had people, I've had uh, on a couple of occasions, I've had people come up to me and say, I'd really like to speak to your church. And I'm like, who are, who are you? Really, I've had, I've had multiple emails. I've had, on, on a couple of different occasions, I've had people I've never met before, face to face, they said, I'd like to share in your church next week. And I'm like, are you kidding? I don't even know who you are. It would be irresponsible of, of the elders and of the leadership of this church to give this hastily away. And that's the point of 2 John 1, 10 and 11. It's not that you, you open the door and see that they're a Mormon and shut it. No. That is not the point here. That is not cool. That is, that is a terrible witness. You do that, you're an awful witness of Jesus Christ. You've got to witness to that person, man. Reach out to them. Tell them the truth. Don't slam the door in their face and yell 2 John 1.10. Golly. I've heard that preached and I am, I'm just not happy with that. Not happy with that interpretation. Anyway, Niels. Anyway, I'll stop. Number six. Let's go to uh, two more here. Number six. Those who profess a false revelation will be judged. Those who profess a false revelation will be judged. I, I'm not going to turn to the passage there. That, that's just self-explanatory. But let me, let me say clearly, don't make up a story. Don't do it. I, I know that um, there are some who have uh, the personality type where we, 
We struggle with deception. And we struggle with popularity and wanting to be liked. And we might be tempted to make up a story. To make up a dream or a vision that we've heard from God. Or to make up, well, the Lord said this to me. I, I, I just, I warn you, do not do that. You will only be bringing down judgment upon yourself. You will only be bringing down discipline by God upon yourself. If you lead the flock astray, you will be judged. Lastly, number seven, the ability of the enemy to deceive is great, but it is not overpowering. It is not overpowering. I want to turn to just the second passage there, the Matthew 24 passage at the very bottom there. Matthew 24, 24 says this. Next one. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Notice the if possible. That means that you are equipped by the Holy Spirit of God and by the Word of God, you are equipped to know truth from lie. You are equipped to know authentic from inauthentic. And when someone does something fantastical and performs a sign or miracle, do not believe them instantaneously. Listen to their fruit. Listen to their words. What kind of conclusions can we make from our study this morning? What conclusions can we take from this? You know, Christians are urged to grow in their faith and in their confidence in the Lord. And when we have a divine dream or vision, our faith and our confidence in the Lord is certainly strengthened. I don't deny that. But one thing is clear. We cannot control when or even if a divine dream or vision will occur. These things are outside of our control. And so, number one, I want to make this point. Let us not, <clears throat> excuse me, let us not desperately wish for the Lord to speak to us by means of a dream or a vision. We should not assume such divine revelation is necessary to grow in our faith. Do not desperately wish for one of these things to occur. It is not necessary to grow in your faith. If we, um, we, we just can't depend on these experiences. Instead, we need to turn to the things that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt can cultivate in us a heart for the Lord. And that is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Number two, we are, a we are fully equipped to grow in our faith by the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Let us rely on the Spirit and the Word for our edification and be pleasantly surprised when God so chooses to speak to us in a dream or vision. You know, it, it, it's kind of like an added bonus, alright? Wow! I just heard from the Lord. That's incredible and joyful and wonderful. But we're not to desperately wish for that experience. We're to rely on the Spirit. You have God in you, the Holy Spirit. What more do you want? You have the, the Word of God, the very truth of God. These things make us fully equipped. And one final uh, piece of wisdom here. I want to say this. Let us create a safe, encouraging, but also discerning community where others can share how God has spoken to them, may we neither be overly skeptical so as to discourage others from ever sharing how God has spoken to them, nor overly accepting so as to potentially elicit and endorse false professions of revelations. Don't miss that point. Where are you on that spectrum? Do you tend to be overly skeptical or overly accepting? Be neither. Be neither. I want to finish with a, a, a story. J.P. Moreland in his book, Kingdom Triangle, he writes about a, uh, a man that he met 
at a conference where he was speaking, and he writes this. He says, I was speaking to a church staff about developing trust in God in their congregation for the coming year. And I included the importance of providing means by which the people could share on a regular basis their answers to prayer and other encouraging things God had done or was doing in them. At the break, one staff member of this church approached me with his own story. A few years ago, a machine had fallen on him and fractured his chest and hands. He was rushed to the doctor, x-rayed, and scheduled for surgery the next day. That evening, a group of believers came to his house and prayed for his healing. At once, the pain left, and he felt healed immediately. The next day, the surgeons took new x-rays before the surgery, and the fractures were completely healed. The doctors compared the new x-rays with the ones taken the day before, and it was obvious that a miracle had occurred. The fracture lines were gone. Here's the punchline. He never shared this with anyone in his church. Moreland goes on to discuss how this man was fearful to, uh, to, to talk about. He, was, he, was, he, was a, he didn't want to talk about himself. And he grew up in a cessationist leaning. Uh, well, God doesn't do those things anymore. Uh, dreams, visions, miracles, uh, signs. No. Uh, I, I, I'm not comfortable talking about it. I'm not comfortable letting the church know about this. Let us create a safe environment. A discerning environment, but a safe environment. If you have heard from the Lord, I want to hear about it. I want to hear about it. The church wants to hear about it. Do not suppose that you need to keep this to yourself. That, well, that somehow you're ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of it. If you have heard from the Lord, if you believe you've had a dream or a vision or a miracle or God has spoken to you, I want to hear about it. Let's be, let's be encouraged together. Let's, let's compare what you've had with the Scriptures and let's, let's ask questions and let's learn more and find out why did God do that? Why did He bring this into your life? What, what, what was the purpose of that dream? What was the purpose of that vision? And maybe, just maybe, the church can rejoice with you and be edified with you. Let us create a safe environment for those things to take place. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this time in, in studying dreams and visions, Lord. God, it's a peculiar subject and one that we don't often talk about. But Lord, we pray that the, some of the parameters we've set, out, we've set forth today would be helpful to us. I pray, Lord, that they would have been biblical and, and, and careful with Your Word. God, if You do choose to use a dream or a vision or speak to us, Lord, we welcome that. And we expect that to happen in accordance with Acts 2. So Lord, help us to know when it's from You and when it might be a figment of our imagination. Help us to be discerning, Lord, and to create a safe place here at Coast where others can share how You have revealed Yourself to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.